Welcome to the second season of the podcast series, The Growing Pandemic, How Innovation and Collaboration Can End Alzheimer's, brought to you by the Global CEO Initiative on Alzheimer's Disease, or CEOI. This podcast series explores opportunities to accelerate our fight against Alzheimer's disease, shared during the 2021 Lausanne Workshop. This convening, held each year in Lausanne, Switzerland, is the world's leading stage for global dialogue on how to speed new innovations in prevention, treatment, and care to those impacted by Alzheimer's. CEOI is an organization of private sector leaders who have joined together to provide business leadership in the fight against Alzheimer's, a growing pandemic that threatens to devastate communities, national health systems, and the global economy if we fail to act. In Episode 1 of Season 2, we will discuss the lived experience of people with Alzheimer's disease after their diagnosis and how health systems can provide better post-diagnostic care planning and services. The panel includes leading advocates, experts, and researchers. Keith Oliver is an advocate for people living with dementia and the UK's first dementia envoy. He was diagnosed with Alzheimer's disease over a decade ago. Serge Gauthier is a neurologist at McGill University who has focused his research on measures and medications for dementia. Mary Michael is the Vice President of Patient Advocacy and Stakeholder Management at Otsuka America Pharmaceutical. She also represents the Global Council on Alzheimer's Disease. Adesola Oguniyi is a neurologist and professor of medicine at University College Hospital in Ibudan, Nigeria. Drew Holzapfel is the executive director of CEOI, the founding secretary of the Davos Alzheimer's Collaborative, and the moderator of the discussion. Together, they share their perspectives on people's journey after an Alzheimer's diagnosis and steps to provide better post-diagnostic support. Please note that the opinions expressed by participants are their own and do not necessarily reflect the positions of the organizations they represent. So I want to start with a first question to, to Keith. Keith, one of the things that I know we would like to uh, focus on is using strategies along the care continuum. Can you talk a little bit about your thoughts on care planning and how this can help someone manage their condition? Yes, thank you. In many ways, to sort of set the scene, my care plan is quite different from that of many patients with dementia in that it was co-produced and created by a consultant psychiatrist and me, based upon a model I created and he supported. Thus, it is genuinely person-centred. The plan works on headings such as what, when, where, who, why, how, impact or outcome, and time frame. So if you can imagine a piece of paper with those headings along the top, what is the person going to get? When are they going to get it? Where is it going to be held or given to them? Who's going to deliver it? Why are they having it? How is it going to make a difference to their well-being and their health? What's the impact going to be? And what is the time frame to review it to see if it's working or not? So that's the basic construct of my care plan. It's written on two sides of A4 paper, so it's manageable to both myself and any professional who is involved in the plan. It is multi-agency and multidisciplinary, 
are monitored by myself continuously and with my consultant every four months. It's a blend of psychosocial and pharmacological and is designed to maintain my well-being and sense of selfhood, which is crucial if I'm to live as well as possible. Just picking out a few examples from the care plan. First of all, it has within it my role as an ambassador or an envoy, because I see that as very much part of my maintenance of my well-being. I receive a lot of support from undergraduate students who are on placement with the NHS and with the third sector in the area where I live. And this retains for me a sense of developing the skills of young people, which is part of what a teacher, of course, should do. So my plan isn't only set in the today, it draws from yesterday as well. The plan also identifies some of the overarching key challenges that I face and confront with my Alzheimer's. Serge, as a practicing clinician and somebody who thinks a lot about post-diagnostic support, can you explain about your role in providing post-diagnostic support? And you mentioned the World Alzheimer's Reports that you've been a part of. Any insights from the research you've done there would be welcome. I'm so impressed with uh, Keith's program. I wish we could do that for everyone. <laughs> so you probably had to look for the right person to be able to develop such a program. I'll just add that the kind of care program you outline, we need to do that also for the family members or the carers. As far as the clinicians, we just wrote about diagnosis. It will get a little easier in the near future. We're talking about one or two year time horizons, so that's very soon, in the sense that we will have uh, new tools for cognitive assessment remotely. We could do part of the pre-clinical visit work remotely with cognitive assessments that are appropriate for the language and the culture of the individual doing the test. The other positive thing about diagnosis is there are blood tests that are emerging as uh, useful, the equivalent of the glucose levels for diabetes. There will be something called P-tau or phosphotau isoforms, fragments of the tau proteins in the brain that we can find in the blood. And this would be a non-invasive, hopefully low-cost, affordable around the world, confirmatory test. It won't replace the clinical assessment, but it will help the clinician and the person with symptoms and their family. Uh, know what is the cause of the dementia or the mild cognitive impairment and plan ahead. I want to go to Mary Michael. Mary, I know you guys, through a variety of mechanisms, really have deep insights into the journey, the person with lived experience, their caregivers, their journey. So could you share with us what you see and what you know and how OTSICA is taking action? What seems to be missing from a lot of conversations is really the role of agitation and other behavioral changes that we see with individuals with a dementia or Alzheimer's. And oftentimes those symptoms can actually predate the cognition in some cases. And so what we're trying to do is elevate the voice of the community to make that a known, you know, sequelae of the condition. The other thing that we wanted to uh, understand, and Serge, you mentioned this a little bit about the importance of having not only the specialist that's, you know, dementia focused or cognitive, you know, impairment focused, but also the general practitioner or primary care physician. And one of the things that we did was we actually surveyed a hundred primary care 
physicians to see how accurate and what their perception of agitation or agitation symptoms were. And 85% reported behavioral issues as the main concern of patients, second only to cognition. And I think that's a very important distinction that we have to keep in mind. And the challenge is even greater for care partners, as you can imagine, because sometimes they're observing these changes and they're reporting it to the primary care you know, physician or practitioner. So in a separate survey of PCPs and neurologists, what we found was that 68% of primary care physicians or practitioners, and 35% of neurologists reported behavioral and psychosocial symptoms of dementia as the symptom for which people living with dementia and their care partners most frequently seek support. Because I think with cognition, there are, you know, certainly supportive tools that can be used in place now. We have wonderful technology solutions and things like that. However, when it comes to these behavioral changes, they're really looking for other types of support for individuals. And oftentimes it is non-pharmacologic. So as a solo, I want to come to you. And you know, in particular, I think it would be interesting to hear an overview of care and management of people with dementia in, in Nigeria and so, some of the challenges that the community faces in delivering the care. These are challenges that we have in low and middle income countries where we have limited manpower, so what we decided in our situation is to try a kind of reminiscent therapy in the form of cognitive stimulation, which is a form of group therapy in which you bring individuals with dementia, mild to moderate dementia together. And then you remind them of things they had done in the past, names, faces, music, currency, things they had done, things they enjoyed doing. And we've shown that with this kind of method, uh, there's improvement in speech language function, there's reduction in caregiver burden, and overall, it seems to work very well, at least in low and middle income countries. I think this gives us an opportunity to uh, go back to Surge here. What are the remote tools that are helpful? What could be more helpful? What's the general state of using these to support patients and caregivers? In terms of diagnosis, we now have the minimal behavioral impairment checklist. That is a way to detect early mood and behavior changes even before dementia. MOCA, the Montreal Cognitive Assessment, also available online. These are examples of tools that uh, are used by clinicians for some time, but are now available for a first assessment by people who have concern. Because of the pandemic, there's been speeding up of telemedicine use to the point where there is a new interest in the neurologist to, to develop um, cognitive assessment tools appropriate for the different stages of dementia. For the follow-ups, especially if we have new treatments, whether non-pharmacologic or pharmacologic, that could slow down progression. For people living in remote regions or people having physical limitations to go out to the doctor or hospital, there will be a possibility to do follow-up using some of the tools, at least for cognition and some elements of function and behavior. I know as part of the Davos Alzheimer's Collaborative work, uh, we are putting the digital cognitive assessment in a number of healthcare systems and having that digital healthcare assessment result be actionable by somebody in the healthcare system also requires uh, some training of the healthcare system. So Keith, I wanna to come to you with the, with the second question here. It's been shared with me that creativity is a, a very important to you. 
And so I'm curious in what ways have, has remaining creative helped you uh, and, and what can we learn from this? Yeah, in, in thinking through this question uh, prior to the webinar, um, I did go back to my, my care plan, which I think in a sense is a creative document. You know, it was created by myself with the consultant. And it's a sense of trying to solve a problem. It inspires my thinking and it, uh, it uh, directs my thinking. Secondly, it, it gives me a sense of challenge and achievement. I share creativity with my wife. So it's, a, it's something we both enjoy doing, both separately and, uh, and together, and then enjoying the, the, the fruits of our labours, and then sharing it further with family, friends, and a wider network. I think it also enables me to step back into my old shoes, which are occupied as a professional. That's important to me because it helps me maintain my sense of self. And also uh, interests which are, are, are creative that I've dabbled in over the years. And it's reawakened those that have remained dormant, such as writing. Thank you, Keith. Yeah, thank you. We've mentioned how much thought has gone into your care plan and what a thoughtful approach you're taking. What are the basic elements of a post-diagnostic care plan? So I'll start with Serge and Adesola. Your thoughts are welcome as well. I'll just uh, add a compliment to what Keith was saying. It's never too late to have creative activities throughout the course of the disease, even in the stage where you cannot live alone safely. It's up to each clinician based on his uh, or her commitment to do the long-term follow-up. Hopefully this will change, but currently uh, specialists like neurologists, most of us tend to do just a diagnosis and then you go back to your family doctor and good luck. This is, of course, not ideal. We need to work out an interaction, as uh, Keith has done so well, uh, between the family doctor group. It could be more than one family doctor. It could be as a group with a nurse helping field the calls and the specialist. For now, the plan of treatment has to cover the immediate needs of the person, depending what stage they're at in their disease and the need of the family education. I think is the first thing the clinician must address after diagnosis. So at McGill, we just uh, started a uh, booklet that is given immediately to uh, the people interested. Uh, Half of the booklet is for persons with early symptoms uh, living with dementia, and the other half is for the family member. So they know more about the stages and plan ahead. It gets into the financial planning, house security planning, etc., So Mary, I want to come to you here. We've been talking about uh, care planning. So can you talk a little bit about the role of uh, advanced directives in care planning and how these specifically can be used to address and plan for behavioral changes due to Alzheimer's? Sure. So, you know, in our research, what we found that while advanced directives are oftentimes used You know, there is a new psychiatric advanced directive that the American Psychiatric Association has been promoting or at least showcasing that's available. And what this allows the individual and the family is really to have these conversations so that the individual living with Alzheimer's or dementia and, you know, or or quite frankly, it was really created for individuals with uh, serious and persistent mental illness, that they could voice their preference for what future treatment could look like. So we're wondering if there's a way that families could actually leverage what's existing in other categories so that individuals can really make their preferences known. 
I love the fact that Keith and our two clinicians talked about informing and, and educating the family members and the care partners. And what I would do is I would invite anybody to go to our gcad.net website. And what we've done is we've created webisodes around having the conversation about seeking clinical advice just to see if somebody has Alzheimer's or cognitive issues. I do want to come back to you with another question, Keith, if you don't mind. Uh, You've mentioned social prescribing to us before. Can you tell us, first of all, what it is and how this has helped you? Social prescribing, I see as something completely different, that it is something that the intervention is there before the need, so to speak, or before the need gets so severe that the potential benefits of the intervention are going to be minimised. I feel that there needs to be more research into the short and long-term benefits of social prescribed interventions and treatments. For example, talked a bit this afternoon about Uh, creativity. Well, creativity lends itself very much to social prescribing by way of the arts, by way of music, by way of dance, Um, also through physical activity, Um, going on walks, for example, both in a group where you've got the interactions and the social connections, but also the physical exercise. Not everybody would necessarily be motivated to do it without that encouragement by way of someone suggesting it or prescribing it for them and then monitoring it to see if it's having the benefits that the patient can derive. You know, I would like to go to Adesola. Uh, is there an equivalent to social prescribing in, in Nigeria? Thank you very much. Uh, if we look at the Lancet Commission report, social isolation is one of the risk factors for dementia. And what we've done is to look at the individuals who have a lot of social connections, you know, Indianapolis Ibadan study, compared the amount of social interactions that they have and the cognitive performance against those who have very little. And there was, it, there was a relationship. The more social interactions people had, the better their cognitive performance and the less cognitive decline. So it's very helpful. Yeah, I think no matter where you live around the world, you need to retain your physical well-being and health by way of fitness, you need to retain your mental well-being by way of engagement with the arts and culture and other people. The beauty of music is the same whether you're in Africa, Asia, Europe or America. And the beauty of dance is the same wherever you are in the world. The dancers may be different, the art may be different, but the impact it has upon you, I guess, will be the same. Healthcare providers, health systems, and other stakeholders can take important steps to provide stronger post-diagnostic support to people with Alzheimer's disease and dementia. This support should be person-centered, prioritizing the individual's preferences, needs, capabilities, and sense of self. It should also integrate their caregivers, healthcare providers, and broader care team, and be regularly assessed and updated. This kind of support can help to ensure high quality of life and slow progression, as well as incorporate new advances as they become available. These are the building blocks for post-diagnostic support to better address Alzheimer's disease, the growing pandemic. Thanks for listening. To learn more about the Lausanne Workshop and the Global CEO Initiative on Alzheimer's Disease, please visit Us Against Alzheimer's dot org.